A quick word before we get started today. This week we'll be talking about all the action more in the boardroom than on the field with the news of the ICC revenue distribution model from 2024 to 2027 coming through, as well as the end and the future of international cricket with uh, Super League concluding and everything surrounding this new model that is set to be put in place. We understand that there has been action on the field in the emerging game this week, and we will get to all of that in due course. The Southeast Asian Games, Australia's Indigenous Tour of Vanuatu, as well as Japan's hosting of the Sri Lankan emerging side. We will talk about all of that in due course, but we felt it was necessary for us to discuss the potential future of international cricket and international associate cricket as well, given it is such a big and deep topic. We also want to thank Burtis de Jong and Russell Degnan for their work and their words uh, on social media and other parts of the internet in regards to all of this as well. If you don't follow them already, make sure you do that. Also, a thanks to our patrons around the world who are helping us and the show by pledging their money. You can do so from as little as two US dollars a month uh, via patreon.com forward slash emerging cricket. But yes, uh, this week is more of a philosophical chat than a chat of action on the field. Uh, but we felt it was necessary to talk about the future of the emerging game and international cricket as a whole. Hello and welcome in again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, live and on Sport FM in Perth. Daniel Beswick alongside Nick Skinner, who's with me. There's a lot to talk about, Nick, uh, in, well, the overarching points of uh, international cricket. And first of all, Nick, how are you? I know you've been gallivanting a little bit more uh, in Iceland. How's things over there? Very well. The West Fjords, a very beautiful part of the world. Not quite as nice as the Faroe Islands, but uh, you know, similar vibe. Fjords, sea, small towns, a uh, little bit of snow still, uh, a lot of fog up in the mountains. Just you know, some stunning drives, and you know, you, you go on a road trip for the destination usually, but here, you know, the the trip itself was just part of the the tourist package, I guess. Some amazing mountains on the way next to the road driving you could sort of see the cliff as you're driving next to it that sort of thing um thoroughly enjoyed that and uh, visited an abandoned herring factory uh, of all things which was yeah quite interesting <laughs> it's all about the journey right you could probably make a nice segue into international cricket on on that but uh sounds like a good life there nick i know that you had a bit of a, an incident there with the the hire card we, we don't need to get into that uh how's how's things in australia actually because I, I noticed the first time in um pretty much the whole time i've been here it was actually warmer here than it is in australia the jump is probably a, a giveaway. We're getting pretty cold into May, but yeah, it has been a pretty nippy week and I've been nursing. Mel and I have both been nursing a bit of a cold that we've had over the last uh, week or so um, and I just haven't really been able to shake it. Uh, it's meant that I've sort of sat at home a little bit more and there's been some cricket on. We've watched uh, Japan take on a Sri Lanka mm. emerging side as they prepare for a couple of competitions on the horizon. But Pretty philosophical chat, I think, today, the Emerging Cricket Podcast. There's a couple of really big topics that I think when we look back, a lot of them will be relevant in the years to come. Things like the ICC uh, revenue distribution model that's been leaked uh, over the last few days or so. Also looking at, at Ireland playing test cricket away from the Sri Lanka series that's just gone, but with the England test coming up, everything surrounding that and 
where they kind of stand in the international game. Some more international cricket on the field. We know uh, Tim's been working feverishly to make sure that the Vanuatu series against the Australian Indigenous men's and women's squads has gone down smoothly and it's looked like an excellent series from the outside. We've watched the the streams for that as well. Uh, We'll hear from Tim a little bit later on the pod uh, in regards to all of that. Southeast Asian Games is on, still hasn't finished at the time of recording, but there's been four competitions between men's and women's cricket, so you can't really miss any of the action there, and and a few sort of surprises have popped up, but also, uh, if you were to kind of unpack it, a lot of it kind of makes sense with Cambodia's men's team making a few waves in their sort of start to international cricket, but I think the big start for today is uh, the ICC revenue distribution model that has been learned about over the past couple of days. Nothing is set in stone yet, but if you look at all the leaks and all the reports from the likes of Crick Info and others, you can make a pretty fair deduction as to where everything is heading over the next 2024 to 2027 cycle. The annual sort of surplus earnings in, in terms of millions of dollars, India stand to earn uh, $231 million. That's 38.5% of the entire share of those surplus earnings. From an associate point of view, they stand to gain $67.16 million across every single associate member, which will then be split in terms of scorecards and, and other things like that, that that we've talked about in the past. We might get into that a little bit later. Uh, that's 11.19%, remembering that that's every single associate member put together. Full members stand to earn uh, 88.81%, but 38.5%, as mentioned, is, is India there. It's been an interesting few days looking at the ECB and CA's position in all of this because what was once the big three has turned into the big one where India have essentially turned around and said, uh, we don't need you guys anymore. We're just going to sort of do our own thing. There's been a couple of sort of misguided arguments, especially from Indian pockets in regards to, well, they're earning the most money for the ICC, ergo they should uh, be given the most money. We can sort of break down that comment as well. But just to, as an intro question, Nick, what were your early sort of findings or, or early takeaways from from the news that came through this week? I mean, it's not very surprising, is it? It, it, it kind of this document or leaked document or you know proposed document or, or whatever it uh, ends up being is just a microcosm of a huge number of the problems that, that are really plaguing cricket at the moment, the stratification of international cricket, the very lopsided way that, uh, you know, cricket's structure and, and revenue sources come from. I think the BCCI's estimate that, you know, all of this money comes, you know, through the, the personal management of Jay Shah and, and his friends, uh, therefore the BCCI as an organisation deserves to get all that money is, is kind of a, a pretty weak argument. But it certainly shows the political power of the BCCI within the ICC. It shows the complete uselessness of the ICC as an organization. And you know, we've talked about that in the past and how, you know, progressively over the last decade plus, the big three and certainly India, but, you know, their cronies, England and Australia, have been progressively getting rid of the ICC's independent decision-making capacity insofar as it you know ever had any there, there was 
always limitations on that on that power but you know now it pretty much is just a, you know, a puppet for the BCCI and to a small extent uh, England and Australia yeah I mean even within the four members though of course you, you know you look the ECB and Cricket Australia getting the second and third most amounts at roughly 40 million per year and all the way down to uh, Afghanistan at uh, 16.8 million dollars a year so there's even even within the the rest there's still some stratification there yeah so it's it's kind of the confluence of a lot of problems and we can sort of get into a, a lot more detail in a minute but the overall point and and one that I hadn't thought about so much was pointed out by Russell Degnan who has an excellent thread on his Twitter account Idle Summers kind of going into the into the numbers but also you, you know there's no real ambition in growing revenue from other sources and to an extent, that's by design, and the BCCI seems set on keeping its kind of stranglehold on the game. But, you know, he compares it to the NBA, where they've invested over a billion dollars in sort of alternative revenue streams, you know, online streaming platforms, games, uh, various other things, sports betting, um, etc. ICC isn't really doing much of that. There's this kind of half-hearted, uh, late-to-the-party NFT stuff they're doing, but it's very kind of tokenistic and, and it's, it's not really going anywhere. So, you know, other than developing the game on the field, they're just kind of stuck in this rut of, of lack of ambition because, again, this goes back to the ICC's dysfunctional structure. The organization exists as a, as a piggy bank in the short term for rich boards. And, I mean, this, this rights deal is looking to be over a four-year cycle, not even the sort of usual eight-year cycle we've, we've become accustomed to. It's a very short-term thing, and, and the ICC at this point is just kind of a, a way of topping up the funds of boards that really don't need it. Well, and this is the thing, is a lot of the vitriol and the hate that goes around during this conversation of distribution models of finances, a lot of it is pointed towards the ICC, but you have to remember some of that is actually quite unwarranted because... If you actually understand how the ICC runs or what it serves, it's to serve its members. It's not to actually be a quote-unquote governing body of international cricket. It's actually just there to ensure that its members kind of get what they want. So when you put it like that, this is essentially the ICC almost being held to ransom by the BCCI, knowing that they have the political power and the financial power to turn around and say, well, if we don't get this, then we really do just go rogue and go against everything that the ICC does. It means that some of the, again, some of the criticism towards the ICC is somewhat unwarranted, but you can also go back to Wolf Report documents and, and maybe the ICC sort of made their own bet in this case where, you know, they never had that political power and they never had that sway and this was always going to happen if it was the ICC being a body that, that is meant to serve its members. I think the most important thing to take out of, say, the argument that, well, yeah, India earned the most money and there were some people that went completely rogue at Andrew Nixon on Twitter, <laughs> went on sort of post-colonial sort of rants of, of India v. England and uh, yes. pictured him as kind of this English fan who was angry about England not being the, the biggest earners at the table. That Well, I mean, that's unwarranted for so many different reasons. But you have to think that this money going to India, where is it actually going? You know, I've spoken to so many India cricket fans over the, the last few years who complain about poor facilities at IPL venues. The infrastructure is poor, especially for, for women's fans who are going to IPL games and like just basic stuff like amenities and bathrooms not being up to scratch. You know, you have to kind of ask yourself, where actually is this India money going to? You know, 
Yashalsvi Svi Jaiswal just made an unbelievable knock in the IPL, 98 not out of however many balls. Uh, if you look at his story, pre the Under-19 World Cup, he tells his story about how he was living in a tent basically in Mumbai and he wanted to play cricket professionally and it got to an ultimatum where he was basically told, uh, if you don't make runs in this next game, then we're sorting other arrangements for you. And the story goes that he makes runs and he goes on to make the under-19 India team. You know, if that's the situation that kids in, in Indian pathways are living in. And you have to ask yourself, you know, the, the money that, the, that India are getting from the ICC here, I'd love to know where this money is actually going to in terms of Indian cricket because even Ranji Trophy cricket and the 30, almost 40 states that play India Ranji Trophy cricket, there are states there, there are associations there that are struggling to make ends meet. And that's at the high end of men's domestic cricket let alone women's cricket that's been so deprived that, you know, they didn't have central contracts for women's players up until recently in a market that's been criminally under-resourced and under-appreciated. And India are getting how much for all of this? It makes you wonder, you know, this money is only going to rich people. It's not as if they're really even building an infrastructure for the game in India. So I think you know, a lot of the responsibility actually goes back on the BCCI. You know, okay, sure, you, you can sit there and claim your share, but what's it going to? And and the other point is, one of the criteria for this revenue model uh, in terms of how the money is distributed, recent history at ICC events, India have won, they won the inaugural T20 World Cup in 2007, and they won the Cricket World Cup in 2011. That's, if you look at it as a, a 20-year model, because I think it goes back 20 years, that's two global tournaments since the 2003 World Cup. So I think even if you're an India fan, you need to ask yourself, and this is why it's a, it's a holistic point. You know, we know that so many of these boards are already underfunded. And then the full members here outside of India have been screwed by what's gone on here. The associates actually, by comparison, have kind of kept their share reasonably together as what it's always been. Granted, it's it's not enough and it never has been enough. And, and we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll go to the hill and say that. But it's all the lower end full members that have really been screwed here. We could talk about Ireland and, and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and, and Zimbabwe and, and Afghanistan, although Afghanistan did receive a bit of an uptick. But what's going to happen in, you know, in the next cycle after this in terms of international cricket, if franchise cricket goes the way we're going and Bird has made a really good point, on the the qualified playoff show uh, going back a few weeks. It, it gets to a point where we're all going to be disillusioned by this and international cricket for us is is going to be somewhat of a novelty. Well, yeah, there's a lot going on here and, you know, so much of it is in- interconnected as well. You know, you talk about the franchise side of things and, I mean, this is sort of marginalising international cricket ostensibly in favour of franchise cricket, which, you know, in the short term that helps the BCCI because they get so much money out of the IPL. But then, you know, you, you think, and this is the point Burtis made, what is the BCCI actually contributing to the IPL? Not a whole lot other than, you know, rubber stamping it. And you look at other major sports leagues around the world, they don't give half their revenue to the national governing body to rubber stamp the organization. You know, the NBA is not giving 50% of its revenue to Basketball America or... <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what the organization is. Um, and same with same with Major League well, Baseball. 
Yeah, that's like that. That's the that's the same point that Nate made, right? That there is technically a governing body of American baseball, but Major League Baseball is the overarching organization that calls the shots on everything to the point where they actually run the World Baseball Classic, the quote unquote global tournament that baseball has, right? Well, exactly, and so. You know, looking at most of these guys and yeah, as you say, where does the money go? That's a very interesting question. Probably a, a whole podcast series in itself. I mean, the, the current head honcho at the BCCI is the son of a senior government minister. So, I mean, that's a pretty obvious line to draw. Um, you know, the political connections is a whole can of worms here with the BCCI. It's technically a non-profit in India, so there's not even really any scrutiny of their accounts. Um, I don't think they've released any for well, a good sort of five years or so. Um, so, yeah, where, where is the money going? Very good question, Bez. <laughs> I don't think many people have the answers, but BCCI is contributing not a whole lot to the IPL franchise. So, if you're a franchise owner, you you at some point you're going to start thinking, what are we cutting checks to the BCCI for? <laughs> what what are they actually doing for us? They're not really uh, improving the brand. And then this goes to the ICC's ostensible role in developing the game internationally. You know, you make the NBA comparison. They want to expand everywhere around the world, especially China, especially Africa, where the markets are growing. So if you're an IPL franchise owner and you want to, you know, do the same thing, suddenly you're looking to promote the game internationally at the same time as the BCCI is going in the other direction and and marginalizing the international game and, and, you know, kneecapping the international organization whose job is to promote the game. So you've kind of got the BCCI pulling in the opposite direction of the interests of the franchise ownership because (laughs) the ICC is obviously the logical vehicle for global expansion. So are those $231 million going into the BCCI's pockets? And again, this is from the perspective of an IPL franchise owner. That's $231 million a year that's going into a black hole in India that nobody really knows what's happening to it. Shouldn't you be using that for global expansion? And instead, you've got the BCCI kind of limiting growth opportunities for the IPL. So are we going to start seeing IPL owners maybe pushing the BCCI to use some of this money to grow the game? I mean, they've done a few little things here and there, uh, a little bit with Bhutan, a little bit with Nepal, a little bit with Afghanistan. But, you know, so far it's been pretty tokenistic. So then what the BCCI sort of takes the ICC's money and then just becomes a less efficient version of the ICC. That seems like way too many steps. Why not just let the ICC do global development? So that's kind of an interesting uh, conflict maybe coming down the pike. And the, the BCCI is kind of hastening its own irrelevance here uh, as, as they marginalize the product that they actually contribute to and have a, have a, a real stake in, i.e. international cricket. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you're thinking about the game and, and you want the game to grow, obviously it makes no sense to be giving $231 million per year to the BCCI. Right, their their domestic deals uh, involving the IPL and bilateral cricket and whatnot, they're in the range of sort of 1.5 billion, nudging up to 2 billion. So what you're giving them an extra 15, 20 percent, and this relates back to your point that the BCCI could just pack up their stumps and go home. One of the uh, key negotiating tactics is the ability to walk away from a deal, and 
the BCCI, you know, plausibly could afford to just completely ditch international cricket precisely because they don't actually need the money. Yeah. And the, the position that international cricket is in is that obviously they need the BCCI or they feel they need the BCCI. The BCCI don't really need international cricket. And because the BCCI don't need international cricket, that actually means they can leverage international cricket into giving them more money, which is absurd and <laughs> completely unhelpful. Uh, if you're trying to, you know, grow the game and, and you know, diversify the sport. And I, I suspect there's kind of a fear within the BCCI that if you do diversify the sport, that dilutes the BCCI's influence, when really the fear should be an internal fear that, as we've discussed, they're going to become irrelevant in the face of franchise ownership. BCCI should be doing everything they can to promote international cricket and to make international cricket an attractive product that competes with the IPL and, you know, offers alternative revenue streams rather than increasing their own reliance on the franchise owners, whose, I guess, incentives are not necessarily aligned with the BCCI's. So... Yeah, I mean, coming down the track are some questions for the BCCI and a lot quicker for everybody else. And, and that's why you see, obviously, England and Australia and, and Pakistan. And, you know, we're all trying to start our own franchise leagues because that's kind of seen as the, the path to sustainability. And I don't know, I think CA's model of um, owning every single team and not giving into the pressure of, of private ownership has served them well because it means they don't have that competing incentive. I think for me, I can accept that an ideal sort of model of the way cricket would run on a 12-month calendar is that, yes, you would have quote-unquote franchise domestic action where players earn a significant portion of, say, a yearly salary or, or their yearly keep of, of money, though the calendar or the, the windows of international cricket would be big enough where you can happily and in harmony have a roughly 50-50 split of players being across franchise cricket and across international cricket will be very naive to think that budding professional cricketers solely want to play international cricket. If there's not enough money in that position, then you know, you're know you not going to get people sitting there and, and, and simply just playing international cricket and, and plodding along and, and not earning enough money. You know, We have to accept that for the players and, and for people involved in, in professional cricket, coaches and, and other staff, physios you know they need to ensure that they're busy the entire year and they earn enough money over the course of the year and Bertus made a great point that when people say that the game is going towards a football model they're getting the wrong football where <laughs> yes everyone's thinking of of soccer football when in actual fact it's the you know the franchise ownership of of American football and and, and American sports I think in a utopian cricket world you do have a calendar more or less like association football, soccer, but the financial model would come from the sort of Americanized version of what professional sport is. And again, we need to acknowledge that, you know, the ICC's uh, Finance and Commercial Affairs Committee is chaired by the BCCI secretary, Jay Shah, and uh, a former PepsiCo chairperson in, in uh, Nui, along with Richard Freudenstein, who's part of the CA board, uh, Mukalani is also on that board and I think Ross McCollum was on it from Ireland but has sort of stepped down from that but this is where it gets murky right because okay we can easily say on one hand yeah look uh, the BCCI's influence on the ICC is so big that you know the BCCI are actually probably more responsible for all these changes in international cricket as opposed to the, the so-called international governing body of cricket the ICC but when it's been accepted that this is the committee that's going to be fronting up the financial and, and 
commercial affairs of the ICC and you have conflicts of interest, i.e. the BCCI secretary, then what do you expect is is going to happen, right? And when you look at every single decision that's been made by the ICC, in inverted commas, like the changes of, of constricting the World Cup to 10 teams, we know the Cricket World Cup, the Men's Cricket World Cup goes back to 14 teams uh, in the next cycle, but and the scrapping of the Super League too, you have to ask yourself, is it really in the ICC's best interest to make those decisions? And the answer, frankly, is no. It's not what they want. It's what India want. And when India have so much political power like this, this is what's going to happen into international cricket. I just wish that, okay, yeah, sure, the ICC is responsible for some things that happen in international cricket that are detrimental to the game. But when you look at the influence and when you look at who actually owns the decision and who has the onus to make change in international cricket, there's one board that has that onus and one board that has that power. And I'm telling you right now, it's not the ICC that has that. Yes, although uh, you know you can't you can't quite skate over Cricket Australia's nefarious influence here. You know, you've... and that's a good point too. We could get we could get to that as well. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the Super League and uh, an interesting Twitter thread from uh, from Cricket Australia recently about why the Super League died. Oh, um, yeah, we we can talk about that later. But um, well, it's almost it's almost worth talking about now, right? Because yeah, no, it's right. Everything everything connects, and that's the whole point. Is that all of these? It's it's a confluence of all these problems that are facing cricket is just laid bare in this one doc- document. You can find it on Cricket Australia's corporate website that one of the things that they wanted from the next cycle was no mandated matches against opponents. They wanted the freedom of being able to host whoever they wanted in international cricket. It's celebrated in their press release that they ran. And they tried to kind of almost play the fool and say that, oh, the ICC have weirdly scrapped this Super League nonsense. You are the ones that wanted this. Mm -hmm. This is your doing. Like, this is your part of your decision, part of your ongoing mission statement of what you wanted Cricket Australia to be. If you look at the next, I think it's three summers of international cricket in Australia, they host the West Indies again for the uh, second, actually, second summer in a row. I'm not too sure how that all panned out. It's just part of the FTP and the World Test Championship cycle which still has to run into the next cycle australia host guess who india again and the ashes and i spoke okay yes the ashes is probably got an asterisk on it given the so-called history between the, the two teams and the need to have that series but shock me australia want to host india in international cricket for their own financial gain not for the good of the international game i wonder why like it's not Difficult to work out. Yeah, I mean, hosting the West Indies twice in a row is interesting. That's like a back to the eighties or something. They've and um, CA hate that. But yes, no, you're right. We 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 do need to face up to the fact that Cricket Australia are just as complicit in this. They're just as happy to you know marginalise the health of international cricket to benefit themselves. I know there are sort of different factions within Cricket Australia, and some are more kind of open minded about things. We might hear about that from Tim a bit later, but. Yeah, I mean, when you're openly bragging about how you want to get rid of the Super League and then you're posting on social media, oh, why is the Super League? Oh, that's weird. What what happened to the Super League? That's, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, Fancy uh, that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty disingenuous. It's this weird mental gymnastics that, that CA have to figure out for themselves, right? For all this time, India strung the ECB and CA along. Oh, come with us, come with us, come with us. We'll, we'll fill our own pockets 
everyone else can do whatever they want. We're going to make an absolute ton of money. It got to the point where India are that self-sustainable and that independent. They never needed the ECB and CA. And the ECB and CA, I think, the discussion in the boardrooms in both of those governing bodies right now would be fascinating. To be a fly on the wall <laughs> for those conversations would be incredible because right now they're at sixes and sevens trying to work out, okay, now this is the new situation we're in. If anything, we're back with the rest of the, the full member pack. And yes, Nick, you made the point that their model of T20 cricket, the BBL, and it being owned by CA, right now that's all well and good, but that product has struggled in the last few years based on uh, a number of different factors, both in and out of their control. Not least, and and we're getting to this, the marginalization of international cricket and, and the fact that Ex- the BBL is kind of viewed as second rate because there's no international cricketers playing in it. Yeah, exactly. And there are other domestic leagues in that same time period as them that pay players twice as much to do half as much work. And there is going to absolutely be a time where... India come knocking to CA and say, look, do you need to be bailed out? Do you need people to to take over and buy T20 teams for the sake of turning it into a franchise league to make it financially viable and sustainable? Because it's exactly the same situation that South Africa are going through right now where, okay, CSA make a ton of money in the first year, but they basically sell their soul to franchise owners in India and they become rent seekers because CSA's only relevance in in the future, in terms of cricket, will be staging international fixtures. And if you're already foregoing international fixtures, which South Africa have already done in terms of Super League cricket, what hope do they have in five to ten years' time? And and Burtis makes the same point. Go back and listen to that last part of that qualifier playoff chat. It could have been a 30-minute chat in its own right, but are people looking 20 years ahead down the track at CSA or any of these governing bodies because... This is what cricket will be if you bail out for the money and you make international cricket irrelevant. Well, yes. And and as we say, this is how it goes back. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, Cricket Australia are, are helping to kill off the Super League. The Super League was one of the few things giving international cricket more prestige as opposed to less, more relevance as opposed to less. And instead of continuing down that direction and trying to push for an expanded Super League with with more on the line, you know, maybe some something at the top end as well to keep teams at the top interested once they've qualified, you know, rather than just being a, a skin over the top of the existing bilateral series, give it something, uh, you know, a, a bit more prestige. And no, instead of doing that, they decided to get rid of it so that they can focus on the short-term bilaterals and. Well, I mean, you, let's go back to the Wolf Report. You, you brought that up earlier. Let's say, for you know, a hypothetical scenario where Cricket Australia and the ECB rallied everybody else in cricket to pass the Wolf Report, maybe we'd be in a different situation and the ICC would have been an actual governing body and it would have been able to fund uh, more international cricket and international cricket would be in a different position You know, instead of being marginalised. I mean, obviously, the demographic and economic power of India, you know, to some extent, would probably end up kind of in the same direction here. But instead of actually trying to do something about it, these boards are, are hastening the problem. And in exchange for short-term gains, they're creating, you know, some very serious problems for the game in the long term. And for themselves. Well, exactly. They're, they're creating problems for themselves because, you know, ironically... Everyone talks about the IPL and the IPL owners and part of the reason the league works so effectively is because there's a salary cap 
and because each team gets the same share of the revenue. And that allows a kind of parity that means the product itself, the league, is generally pretty entertaining and competitive. But somehow nobody is able to see this logic when it comes to international cricket. And, you know, the idea of sharing the revenue around from the ICC so that all the teams have a, a fighting chance on the field and the international product is worth watching. Yeah. You know, th- this idea hasn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem to have got through. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very strange. And you, know, you go back to the where does the money go part. This is how it connects over to the kind of BCCI apologists. And this, this you know, really drives me up the wall is, is these people who seem to just view the, the number goes up Therefore, it's good, you know. They kind of have this kind of nationalistic idea that the BCCI getting more money is is somehow a win for India. Well, as you say, is it really a win for India when they they barely have toilets in their stadiums? And if you're an Indian cricket fan, the BCCI is essentially saying that they own you. Yeah. Because their logic here is that, well, Indian fans who are tuning in to watch ICC events... Uh, the reason that the ICC events are worth so much, we are operating in India, therefore we own all the fans who live in India. And in fact, not only do they own all the fans who live in India, <laughs> they own all the fans who live in the USA too, because you know, under the argument of the BCCI deserving the biggest share of the revenue, the fifth biggest contributor to ICC overseas revenue is the USA. So under that logic, does that mean USAC should be getting the fifth biggest cut of the pie? Obviously not, because under the BCCI's logic, they don't they don't just own Indian fans in India, they own every single eyeball of every single Indian person in the world. And it's it's this sort of feudalist mindset. I don't know, maybe maybe I've just been thinking about the coronation a bit much and I'm getting, um, I don't know, I'm feeling a bit, <laughs> a bit seditious. I can't help thinking of royalists and, and this kind of this idea that these people are cheering for a huge, you know, corrupt organization that basically treats them like property and certainly doesn't care about their well-being. But weirdly, we have all these people coming out to defend the BCCI's decision-making because they feel like it's somehow a win for them, even though they're not seeing any benefit from what the BCCI is doing. And then it feeds into, as you're alluding to, the post-colonial grievance narrative which, I mean, that's just the dumbest thing imaginable because what what is going on here? Like redirecting money away from Uganda or Tanzania or Papua New Guinea? Yeah, that's really going to stick it to England. Like what, England has the second biggest share anyway. What, what on earth are these people thinking? Yeah. <laughs> and to go back, I suppose, to, to CA, look, they've, they've only got to play 24 one-day internationals as part of Super League in a three-year period anyway. That. It's a pretty low bar. That is a low bar. I mean, you could still bring India in to play home series if you want to and fulfill your Super League requirements. I mean, Zimbabwe came to Australia, played in Townsville and won one of the one-day internationals there. And again, they did that in spite of everything that goes against them. Zimbabwe, under, say, this framework, I don't know when the next time it's going to be that they'll, they'll be on our shores. And... Quite frankly, if it wasn't for the Super League, they wouldn't have been here in the first place. And they came to the T20 World Cup. They had a a pretty good T20 World Cup as well. And again, all of these smaller nations, even smaller full members, are doing this in spite of everything that goes against them in the international game. I mean, the more that I think about it, the more I think we're actually lucky that it hasn't turned into this dystopian world already because, yeah, you would think that with the cards stacked against you like this, a lot of teams would have just given up 
or they would never perform or the giants of the game would just win and win and win. And we're still not in that position in spite of the inequality that goes around in international cricket. It's, it's quite astonishing. And it gives me hope that in the next three years, the same thing will happen. But ultimately, I think we're just coming to an inevitable demise at some point. It's more of a case of when, not if, unless by some miracle, someone within the BCCI or someone in that FNCA committee just decides, you know what, actually, uh, maybe for, for the good of of us, we actually realise that, yeah, international cricket is the product that we need. The franchises, the Mumbai Indians of the world aren't going to bail us out and they aren't going to give us anything. So uh, actually, yeah, you know what, maybe we should fucking do something about this. I mean, you're looking back to the 2007 rights deal and um, I've been sort of sifting through the ICC's accounts this afternoon to get my head around sort of how things have changed and, and how it was going. Back in that previous rights cycle, so not not the last one, the 2015 to 2023 one that's just concluded, but the one before that, the 2007 to 2015 cycle, which was upended a bit, you know, sort of towards the back end with the, the big three machinations. But originally, the deal was that 6.5% of the profits or surplus would go to each full member, with 35% going directly to the associates. Now, the new model that's been leaked is actually a significant improvement over the, the current one for the cycle that's just gone where associates were getting roughly in in the order of $20 million between them dispersed per year. And so the new one, mainly due to the fact that the rights uh, have gone significantly up uh, on a per year basis, uh, the new one's going to have associates getting somewhere in the order of $65 million per year. So, I mean, on the face of it, that's an improvement. But then, you know, you go back to this 2007 structure with the 35% surplus to associates. Looking across the accounts, and again, this is sort of back of the napkin stuff because the, <laughs> as, as we're accustomed to with the international sporting bodies, the finances are just a little bit opaque. But um, we can kind of, at a conservative estimate, say they were making $100 million surplus each year. And some years it was more, some years it was a little bit less. But for example, in 2011, which was the, the World Cup year, they had a surplus of $200 million, which was dispersed to members, of course. So in 2011, the dollar number was around the $70 million mark being dispersed to associate members, which means 12 years ago, the dollar number was bigger for associate disbursements than it'll be in the first year of this new model, despite the new model being worth more than five times the old one, and, and that's not even factoring in inflation. So uh, imagine if we just kept that previous model, which, as we've kind of established uh, politically, was certainly not feasible. But, you know, looking across that, that whole uh, period leading up to the big three takeover, you know, associate spending per year, even if we go back to the kind of average year of let's say a hundred million dollar surplus so that's a baseline of about 35 million going to associates directly in addition to that there was a bunch of money coming out of the operating costs so there was the ring fenced uh, allocation to the global development program which was uh, 10 million dollars per year so that's already taking us up to 45 million dollars uh, then there was the tap the targeted assistance performance program which uh, it kind of fluctuated a bit but you know in an average year it might be five million dollars so we're already up to $50 million per year in the 2007 model. Things are a little bit woolly from here because uh, they don't really have kind of itemized spending for every single thing that they run. But, you know, we can compare, for example, in the 2022 accounts, uh, it does actually directly list the spend on pathway events, 
which uh, under the current model is $10 million per year. And, you know, given the amount of things that have been cut or, or shortened or done on the cheap, I think you can conservatively estimate that they've saved at least $10 million off that. So, you know, already we're, we're up to the kind of $60, $70 million mark per year. And then, of course, there's the regional spends. Uh, and then as well, they kind of separate out the, the top line uh, qualifying events. So, for example, the Cricket World Cup qualifier in 2014 is a, a line item of $4.5 million. So uh, let's say they run a top level qualifying event, you know, roughly each year. You know, once you add up all the stuff that the ICC was spending 15 years ago on associate cricket, this uh, current amount, $67 million out of the surplus, adding in maybe $10 million for events each year, that doesn't actually sound that impressive because, you know, two rights cycle ago, they were getting only a little bit less in dollar amounts. And, I mean, inflation between 2007 and today, at a pretty conservative estimate, is around 40%. So just to keep up with inflation, it needs to be around the $80 million mark. So they're, they're sort of maybe at best keeping up with inflation from 2007 numbers. And that's with a rights deal, which is worth, yeah, what, five, six, seven times as much uh, in dollar amounts. So, yeah, this, this idea that it's somehow a massive improvement. I mean, yes, it's a massive improvement over the previous model, which was <laughs> abysmal, but it's still at best standing still compared to where we were 15 years ago. And, and that just shows we've had a decade and a half of just complete dysfunction and no one is making any moves to really develop the game. And once again, this goes back to the ICC structure, which is you know a shambles. And it goes back to the complete lack of uh, ambition, which again is why would anybody involved in governing the ICC really do any long-term thinking? Because all they're thinking about is how can we squeeze out as much money uh, over the next quarter? And all of these problems are just compounding. And well, that's, that's where we're at today. <laughs> I... Yeah, I think that's pretty well summed up. I, I don't even know where to, to even go from that, Nick, after you've just decided to... The, the ICC accounts are quite helpfully... Uh, they're, they're online. They're very easy to access. Yeah, so, you know, any BCCI fanboys out there want to uh, dispute my analysis here, maybe they can uh, they can dive in. Go ahead and look for yourself, but I, I think the, the best case scenario is that we're standing still compared to 15 years ago, which is pretty depressing yeah not a whole lot of progress and then to to bring it back i, I suppose to action on the field and and while matches have not been completed per se the super league is finished in terms of determining who the automatic qualifiers for uh the upcoming cricket world cup are and the uh, final makeup of the the qualifier as well uh with the washout in chelmsford between ireland and bangladesh it meant that south africa could not be overtaken in eighth place it means that ireland go to the qualifier the uh full list of the qualifier teams ireland the netherlands sri lanka west indies zimbabwe nepal oman scotland uae usa we'll talk about I suppose, a preview for that tournament as it gets a little bit closer. But uh, I think the points to be made here is that, yes, Ireland will now have to go through the qualifier, which is a brutal tournament. It's arguably the strongest collective field I think we've seen at this tournament in its history, even in 50-over cricket. And that's actually been a direct result of League 2 ODI cricket being such a great thing to happen at this level of the game, and, and people talking about the ODI format dying, if you are to look at, at where we look at a lot, League 2 and even the Challenge League system, one-day cricket and 50-over cricket is is thriving in, in 
this regard. And in future iterations, we'll have more teams at the global tournament itself, 14 teams at the next uh, Cricket World Cup uh, in Africa. But looking to this one, only two teams through from the qualifier. And just, I suppose, as a, as a general point to start off, I, I know we'll talk about uh, Ireland, where they kind of go from here uh, in many different respects. They've also got Test Cricket lined up as well. Looking at the field, you can make a case for five, six, maybe even seven teams qualifying for those last two spots. Probably more of an indication that a 14-team World Cup is is better for the game at this point. Again, you have to ask yourself who's really responsible for making that decision. But looking at it, I, I suppose on the field, Nick, again, you could make a case for, for several of these teams making a, a good uh, account of themselves at the qualifier and ultimately taking one of those two spots. Well, just on the 10-team World Cup, that was actually Giles Clark's baby. Uh, I think the BCCI sort of didn't really care one way or another how many teams were at the World Cup. But um, <laughs> yeah, so again, we, we can't let the cronies off the hook just because there's a bigger villain. But yes, the World Cup qualifier, I mean, this is what we were saying. The product the ICC has is just fantastic. It's going to be a, a, a great tournament. A lot of really evenly matched teams. And we saw this at the World Cup qualifier playoff uh, in Namibia just recently. That was a very exciting, well-matched tournament. You have a couple of teams coming up from there. We have League Two. And then we have the sort of stragglers from the Super League. These teams are all going to be pretty well matched. And as you say, uh, there's not too many teams here that you you think are are no-hopers. And uh, yes, I mean, generally you would imagine Sri Lanka are probably favourites. They've they've seemed to get their act together on the field a a bit recently. But, you know, aside from that, I mean, West Indies, I don't think they're in much better shape than they were last time. And they, you know, last time they only made it through due to... That one LBW decision and a DLS finish, yes. Everyone knows. (laughs) Yeah, we we don't need to, (laughs) we don't need to go over that again. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, Nepal are in red hot form. Scotland topped League Two. Oman, yeah, they're a bit tired. I think they're probably actually the one of the one of the least fancied teams in in my opinion. But yeah, I mean Zimbabwe, Ireland, Netherlands. You can make a case for any of them. I mean Netherlands, sort of depending on how many county players they they get released. UAE seem to have uh, regained a bit of form uh, since <laughs> since sacking their coach, the classic uh, sack your coach bounce. And, uh, I mean, the USA, yeah, again, I think they're probably one of the weaker teams. But, you know, any of these teams, in, in my view, are pretty capable of beating any of the others on, on a good day. Uh, in fact, Scotland have already beaten Sri Lanka a couple of times, I think, in, in 50 over in T20 cricket. So, you know, I, I, Sri Lanka wouldn't necessarily be resting easy. And especially with the format where, you know, if you lose a couple of games early and other teams in your group do well, you're really struggling to qualify. So, yeah. This this is the the problem is, you know, the ICC has such a great product on the field, but they've just been so badly let down in terms of promotion. And again, the Super League, the promotion was was dismal. You know, so many of these uh, players involved in the Super League sort of barely even knew it existed. And you know, obviously broadcasters didn't really talk about it. And the ICC's uh, social media accounts were often talking about, you know, bilateral series or IPL matches or something instead or wishing players happy birthday or whoa, you know, whoa, whatever whoa, instead I, of I can make I touched a nerve there I have huh? touched a nerve there because when <laughs> when our agency took over that contract in 2021 both of those points were things that we wanted to really get right the Super League stuff 
and then yeah our attention to milestones and or birthdays and and whatnot but that's the thing though it took over the contract two years into the tournament the damage was already done i mean that that's a fair point the other thing too is that i actually don't to be honest how much of this was on the broadcasters and where were they getting their directives from because it seemed i mean i don't really want to be a conspiracy theorist on this but it seemed pretty clear that from watching sky and watching fox and seven to a lesser extent they're actually probably a little bit better promoting the super league for what it was even though they didn't actually have rights to super league games because they didn't have the white ball international contract i honestly think there was a bit of a conspiracy theory here between members of the big three ensuring that the point wasn't made on broadcast because it was pretty clear well uh, and again we are in this echo chamber of being absolute cricket nuffies here nick Guilty. <laughs> I thought it was pretty clear that these matches were part of a new competition that was meant to bring more context to international cricket. I would love to know how much Sky knew about this and uh, Fox and then their relationships with their respective national boards who they buy the rights well, of. Well, just on Sky, I clearly remember this segment they ran sort of explaining the Super League. And at the end of it, one of the commentators was sort of saying, oh, it's so complicated. Why don't they just use the rankings? Uh, like, have you seen the rankings? Like, nobody knows how they work. No one knows how the they work. The idea of the Super League being complicated, how is that complicated? You just need to win on the field and then you qualify. That's not complicated. The rankings, come on. I get why they might have said it about the World Test Championship points and how they're calculated because it's based on, you know, the percentage of possible points that you can attain over the course of the period because all the teams play a different number of test matches. But this was the most meritocratic way of deciding who automatically qualifies for a World Cup. You play eight series of three matches, 24 matches, and again, it goes back to the same point. If you want to play teams that that might bring you in more money financially, you can still organize those bilateral series. They don't need to be within the remit of Cricket World Cup Super League. It's not a big deal, and I know we had COVID, but it was pushed past that a little bit and you could fit everything in. Again, it almost seemed like it was an active neglect of giving the Super League any sort of time of day because deep down they just wanted matches for what they were on on television and, and the best opponents and the most financially viable opponents they could have on their doorstep. Well, I mean, CA putting out a press release saying they were happy to get rid of it and that's actually what they wanted the whole time. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> that that makes it hard to deny your theory here that they were sort of keen on, on killing the thing off. But, I mean, my initial sense is more just that that's sort of a cricket problem in that, you know, cricket is just uh, steeped in this tradition of, you know, Victorian-era touring parties that go to a place and play some games. And the, the idea of an international structure is kind of uh, novel. Uh, and so much so that you know, we have gone back to rankings uh, and, you know, the brief experiment with the Super League's dead. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it all just goes back to this, this same problem that the ICC, there's a lot of people at the ICC who have a lot of good ideas and would love nothing more than to grow the game in as many places as possible. But those people at the ICC are fundamentally powerless because the ICC as an institution is fundamentally powerless. And how how can you improve international cricket and you know foster and nurture the game around the world when the body whose job it is to do that is just incapable? Because 
that's what the big boards want. Yeah, and look, I think the nightmare situation in terms of full membership now from an emerging cricket standpoint is that we're, what, five years removed from when Ireland and Afghanistan sort of became full members. I know the, I think the announcement was briefly before that, but I think by the time it, it sort of came to fruition, it was, what, 2018. We're at a point now where down the line, neither team within Kui have been put into the World Test Championship 9. Same goes for Zimbabwe. Uh, Afghanistan has Afghanistan has its own problems, um, and we've talked about that at length in in other podcasts. And looking at Ireland, you know they've just come off two Test matches in Sri Lanka and a Test match in Bangladesh. On top of uh, more white ball matches in Bangladesh, they're about to face England in a four day Test match at Lords. Uh, they've done that before, and they had their moments in a match where they easily could have won that particular Test match. I think it's admirable that. Ireland have been able to play three test matches in the subcontinent. You have to think too that, you know, all of these full members, Ireland, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, are not only at the bottom end of this idea of what full membership is, but they've all had their own issues in their own right. We've talked about the uh, hacking scandal of Ireland and the money that's come out of their pockets, uh, Sri Lanka's political problems, and Bangladesh as a board have had multiple problems as well and it's admirable that in spite of all of this and all of the financial troubles that will probably come their way not only through this model of funding but the next model of funding they're still able to put up test matches because it's what they want to do there's an appetite for it right yeah and i mean in a way i'm, I'm kind of less worried about test cricket dying off than odi cricket being torpedoed because test cricket has its own unique history and i players generally like playing test cricket and they want to play test cricket and maybe not all the time but I think there will always be a place for some test cricket just because the players uh, at the top level really like it but yeah I mean (laughs) this goes back to the the revenue distribution question and you know the ICC at one point was trying to have a a test fund to sustain the game uh, you know in, in countries where it's not as profitable and you know hear about Ireland talking about how much they lose every time they host a test match and, and all that sort of thing. I, I think the test fund was supposed to be something in the region of $10 million a year. Don't quote me on that. Uh, I, that's not one of the numbers I have right in front of me uh, at the moment. But, you know, let's say that that's about right. I mean, look at the revenue distribution here. Would the BCCI even notice if you took $10 million off their share and put it into the into a test fund? Probably not. So, yeah, it just goes back to this question of like the the warped priorities and and the fact that instead of doing something very basic to just sustain the low level that we already have, it's just all about wringing out every extra dollar they can and and putting into their pockets. And yeah, so I mean, test cricket, I think will continue to exist in some form. But yeah, I mean, I don't see Ireland ever really catching up to the established full members because I mean, how much red ball cricket are they going to play? Definitely not enough to catch up with England, who play, what, 15 test matches per year, more sometimes? Uh, Yeah, Uh, there was a period there in that World Test Championship cycle, I want to say sort of, actually would have been during COVID because they hosted the West Indies. They, look, it, it was actually uncomfortable, like, what they forced the West Indies to do to play a test series in that COVID era in the English summer. And I remember... 
just feeling a bit uncomfortable with all of that at the time. But to bring it back to Ireland and Bangladesh, Bangladesh hosted that tour during Ramadan, which I'm sure is not the period of time that they feasibly would like to host international cricket. And again, it's probably a result of you know them just having to play when they can because, say, the IPL's on or there's other sort of windows at different times of the year where they, they can't play. And they are forced to go down that route in order to kind of get what they can out of international cricket. You know, for that series to be held at that point and then with Ireland in the state that it's in it as a board, it's amazing what both of them could achieve at that time. And I think that needs to be probably appreciated a little bit more by the wider cricketing community. That's a very difficult thing for, for both of them to do. And it's in spite of the cards that have sort of been stacked against them. We appreciate you sitting in and listening to all of this. We know that it's uh, quite a lot to talk about, but we feel it's been uh, important to try and give it as much depth and breadth as we can. Thank you for listening. Once again, EmergingCreek.com is the site for everything in the Emerging Game. Make sure to give us a follow wherever you are on social media and to leave a five-star review on the podcast wherever you listen to it as well. But on behalf of Nick and myself, enjoy the rest of your week.